Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Fiona Taylor and later on I'll be joined by my colleagues Chris Collins and Dr Anton Rosenfeld. I don't know about you, but for me it's been a very tricky spring so far. I've needed to apply liquid barley straw to my pond to help achieve balance and stop the blanket weed taking over and I've lost quite a few seedlings so I'm relying on friends for chilli and tomato plants. But there have been a few joys too, such as the bird box that I put up last year becoming home to a pair of great tits in the past couple of weeks. It's a great reminder of how small a thing like a bird box can make a real difference, even in the centre of a city. And in this podcast, we'll be talking all about wildlife gardening, which is at the heart of the organic way of both farming and gardening. Chris Collins spoke to author and broadcaster Chris Baines, a true expert in ways we can all support nature. When it comes to your questions, this month we talk about the difficulties of sourcing organic topsoil, whether or not perennial vegetables need to be part of a garden rotation system, and organic methods for controlling scarred fly. But first, I'm off to put the world to rights with Chris in the potting shed. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, Fiona. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay, thank you. It is gorgeous weather here, I have to say, today. Recording day here at Wrighton. It's absolutely yeah. gorgeous. Sun beating down. How is it with you? Yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, the spring's here, isn't it? I mean, I went out the allotment a couple of days ago. I had a big session on there, and uh, you could feel the sun on your neck, and the birds were tweeting, getting very amorous, so I must say. So, yeah, it's just uh, it's such an uplifting time of year, isn't it? I honestly say I'm in pretty much a good mood all the time at this time of year, and that's not a bad thing, is it? Well, except Chris, I have to inform you that I am bereft. I what's happened? Oh my word! A, a horticultural so, disaster. It's a horticultural disaster. It yeah. really is. This year, for the first time, I grew a few things under just a little tiny basic grow light kit. Yeah. Um, and I grew a number of varieties of tomatoes that I'd saved the seed myself. Yeah. And um, some chilies that I'd saved the seed of, and some aubergines. The aubergines took about three weeks to germinate. I'd been sort of yearning over all of it. They were all doing really nicely. I had about probably about nine sort of square pots, each with you know a smattering of of really good healthy little seedlings in and over the Easter weekend I thought I'll pop them out to the greenhouse the greenhouse you know we had a bit of a colder snap over over the back end of the Easter weekend and that was when I put them out there but I made sure there was some heat going on so I popped them in the heated propagator uh, popped the lid on the propagator thinking that would sort of replicate the conditions in the house and not 24 hours later they were all dead Uh, how did they die they were white and they were keeled over and that was that sounds like they might have scorched Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, you can go again, though. <laughs> well, this is again. what I wanted to ask you. So we're yeah. in May and, you know, obviously I want to, you know, recover yeah. uh, for lost time. So what can I do to compensate? What I mean, genuinely, what can I sow now? Well, I, I would start them again from seed and propagators, um, definitely. Uh, I mean, they like a long season, the chilies and the aubergines, the tomatoes. But I think if you're clever with, you know, a bit of um, thola feed and stuff, you could kick them on. I think that what you just described there is why, you know, when normally if you go to see a greenhouse, a productive greenhouse this time of year, you'll see they're white. Because what they do is they put all this special paint all over the greenhouse to stop exactly what you've just described. Because it's so easy to scorch. And it's like a big magnifying glass. 
last, isn't it? That's what's happened. And it's gone. But I don't, I mean, these, it's in a way the silver lining is you probably learned that now. And that's what, how we learn in gardening, where you kind of, uh, these things happen and we get wise. And I think that um, I would sow against, but you'll be all right with tomatoes. You can sow tomatoes again. Aubergines, it's kind of on the edge because they like a long summer, but chilies and peppers, I would just go again, Fiona. I don't think you've got anything to lose. But start them in trays, sow them, put them in the propagator, and then prick them out as soon as they're up. Prick them out small into individual cells and, uh, and go again. Okay. And so, regardless of my tomatoes, chilies, and aubergines, then, um, what can I start to sow in May? You know, from yeah. scratch anyway well I'm, I'm I'm coming into my third wave I'm going to if I was, I've got my front room <laughs> so you're showing is, off now my front room is full of aubergines tomatoes and peppers just to rub it in and um, <laughs> but I, and I've been like the big job at the moment is I've been lugging them all outside to sunbathe because it's hardening off time isn't it so I want to get them to I want to get them adapted it's a bit windy today and they all look a bit windblown to be honest with you now but they're alright but I kind of they were my first wave of sowing then I kind of do a second wave of sowing in April which is all my uh, brassicas and um, and that sort of stuff some more root crops so my third wave starts now and that's runner beans squash pumpkin courgette those sort of exotic tender plants that I like to start them very late because I won't buy putting anything out till mid-May late May because you might get a radiation frost or a late cold wind so I don't like to start those too early because what ends up happening is you get these especially if you're growing them indoors in a, in a home rather than a greenhouse you get these big leggy plants with very poor root systems that's what tends to happen so I think in the next sort of week 10 days into May I will then start doing all my runner beans my courgettes and they tend to come up really quick in a propagator I'll put them all in root trainers because they don't like especially the, the beans they don't like root disturbance so I put them in ribbed pots and as soon as they're up I'll wait for them well I've, I decide the weather's warm enough and I'll pop them into the ground yeah so third wave I call it out of the three waves <laughs> well I'm going to ask you about flowers because uh, you know the tragedy continues because in that whole scenario I also lost all my cosmos and my um, Cerinthia major which right. is a particular favourite of mine. I know, yeah, it's nice. Yeah, so I'd sow those again. You're all, you're okay with those. They're, they're quite, they're, they're very seasonal plants. I think Cerinthi is a hardy annual, isn't it? I think so. You might be able to, you'll go again with them. Um, I don't, I've, it's, I've no problem with re-sowings. I mean, I, you can carry on right through the summer, really, but obviously the quicker you get them up and going, the longer season you have. Um, so I'd try again, yeah. I must, on my allotment, I've got literally, I put in at the end of the month, 54 grills of flowers of veg. So it all goes up and I put them in spacing so if I have any disasters I can inter-sow as well so I wouldn't be too downhearted about it John. and in terms of direct sowing outside because I've got my sort of mixed flower and veg bed which I've been careful over the winter because I don't mind the sort of friendly self-seeding weeds shall we say I, I'm a particular fan of plantain for example because you can use the seeds and a lot of those sort of spring weeds are edible uh-huh. and I quite enjoy that it's lovely actually it doesn't look like weeds it, it yeah. just looks like sort of you know wildflowers and it just means that the, the soil has remained covered so I've been uh, not in a hurry to clear it but yeah. when I do start to clear it I'd like to do some you know direct sowing of, of flowers that are going to be up quickly but I'm always scared to do it Chris because the years that I've done it in the past I've done that kind of flower sowing at the beginning of May I've got all excited and then um, they'll get a late frost so which, you know, it, which yeah, ones with... can you do you need to still hold back on is probably more the question first rather sure. than what we do do what should we not do well there's two types of sort of what I'll call seasonal flowers that I grow. So half hardy annuals is, um, you know, I love them on my balcony. They're, they're a bit blousy. They're things like pelagoniums and lobelias and petunias. You need 
need to start those in a propagator, a bit like exactly a tomato or aubergine or a, or a run of bean. They need to be started in protective scenarios and then brought on and then planted out late May when all danger of frost has gone. A hardy annual, however, you can put in now. Well, I think I've got about 25 drills of short drills on the allotment. And that's things like sunflowers. I've got a massive variety of sunflower on there. I've got uh, um, calendula English marigolds. I've got cornflowers, goodishas. And you'll, you'll get a big selection of them if you go to a garden centre. You'll see them in the seed thing. And they could go straight in the ground. And if you sow them in drills, you'll see them in nice lines when they come up. You'll know that they're your hardy annuals and not the weeds that will naturally uh, come and colonise areas that have been dig- dug over. That um, sunflowers are hardy annuals. Yeah, well, it's funny. I, I started some for the kids in the block. I, they, I, I went out and I did a little survey of the family saying, what would you want to plant outside the block here? And all the kids said sunflowers, which is quite a not, you know, a normal answer, really. And, uh, and um, so I started some in here to give them as presents to plant out when we plant out. And you could just see they don't like being inside at all. They really object to it. So they like that coldest soil to kick them off, I think. They're a hardy annual. But it's amazing. On the lot, I think I've got eight types in, and some of them are only grown to like half a metre tall and a bronze. And some of them are like yellow and will get up two, two and a half metres. So I'm quite excited to see them. And they come up quite quick. You know, they come up. I'll sow them quite thick, so I'll probably thin them out a bit. And the big thing is, is you need to support them. You need to get bamboo on them and make sure they're supported. They're so strong, though, as well. Aren't they? I mean, they get so you know so fat those stems. Yeah, once they get going, it's this just this time at the moment. I'm a massive, massive babysitting operation. It's a busy time. I just have to keep an eye on it all. But once the roots get down, you know, and then they start to put on growth, you're away. You know, it's the speed of it. I was looking at a picture of my allotment last year before and after and you're like really it's quite it's just quite an incredible miracle it really is it really is and I actually I left the sunflowers in all winter and they've just been you know they've just been covered in birds and you know that just not a thing goes to waste it's that it's that wonderful sort of cycle isn't it of something going all the way through you know absolutely brilliant and actually great attractor of wildlife and I know later on we're hearing from your chat with Chris Baines all about wildlife gardening and I wonder what sort of insights did you pick up from Chris Baines? Well, he's an interesting character because he very much pioneered this sort of thing Uh, back in the days when I would have been starting gardening and everybody was like it has to be immaculate. It has to be, you know, weed, attack it, you know, pest, attack it. And we've come um, a long way since then. But it is all about, it's accommodating. We're, you know, as God we're going to do, we're into biodiversity. I want to see. It's not my garden. It's all nature's garden in a way. And, and I, that means I have to cope with certain pests as well, which could obviously provide me with problems. But the idea is, is you create a, a balanced area, isn't it? Hence, I put the hardy annuals in, flowers for my pollinators. Um, I like to, or don't, as it grows in, I don't like to see too much open ground so that protects the soil provides cover for stuff so I kind of think that he pioneered that and he's a gardener though like me so he isn't I'll just let it be it's none of that you know what I mean we'll have it he is gardening but he's gardening with nature in mind which is obviously as we're seeing now this is the way forward yeah absolutely and both we all have different um species that visit our gardens or our allotments or our balconies and it's quite interesting to think about the kind of approaches that you and I have we've had a few laughs about the pigeons and how you outwit the pig. one person's pest is another person's joy it's really an interesting debate when you start to think it through but I do think that actually even though we think we're all a bit more enlightened if you were to flick through the pages of two or three popular garden magazines you would see an awful lot of adverts 
pets, for ways to keep wildlife out of your garden. We, we seem to favour birds, and so, we, so let's feed the birds, but let's put a sort of siren in our garden that will deter the foxes. It doesn't quite stack up, does it? No, it doesn't. And I think, I mean, you're right. If I go into, if you went into a well-known DIY store or, or a lot of garden, there'll be a wall of pesticide. It's, the irony of it is, is actually if you're prepared to be patient, you'll get a balance in the garden and nothing will be too dominant anyway. I mean, the perfect example is ladybirds, ladybird larvae with your black fly on your run of beans, your broad beans. It, it, nature kind of comes in and deals with it by itself anyway. We mentioned foxes. Well, I used to have a big pigeon problem on my allotment and uh, there's a few foxes there this year and I've not seen a pigeon. <laughs> so you kind of find it kind of gets its balance. And also, I just think that don't, be, don't overthink it. Relax is the word I suppose I'm looking for. Um, I have a problem with things like peel slugs on the allotment, which is subterranean. They kind of under the ground and they kind of eat through stuff. And that causes me down. They, they eat still on. They, give, they eat strawberries, but I, I probably only lose. 10% of the strawberries, 15%. So, you know, in the bigger picture, I'd rather take the 85% and have a biodiverse allotment that isn't got pesticide on it than just have 100% and everything sprayed. Does that make sense? I yeah, definitely. I, 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 I think there's an element of sacrifice here. Yeah? And also observation, we talk about this all the time. I'm out there with my tongs. <laughs> and also if I see them, I'll pick them over. The reward is, is you have the magic moment. I was sitting on my sofa on the balcony. I've got two bats that come every night at dusk. And there's this like pinky sort of sunset. Bats are flipping around outside the window I mean what, what more could you ask really? oh just I absolutely love them I really do I just I have them as well actually I mean I'm right in the middle of a town as well and and that is the extraordinary thing actually is I don't know much about zoology or animals in general but I do understand that there is a sort of genetic memory that exists with, with, with all species and so that's why things come back to places where they breed as I say right in the middle of Worcester is where I live I came out of my front door and there was a muntjac running down the road. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I think it was a muntjac. It was either a muntjac yeah. or just a very small deer. Yeah, yeah. I it, I couldn't believe it. I said, what? But actually, it turns out that the area where I live 150, 200 years ago used to be a deer park. I mean, I don't know. I could be making it up. But I mean, it is interesting, <laughs> isn't it? And yeah, it is. I think that if you allow, this is the thing with nature, it's very strong. And if you allow it to expand and you allow it to, to thrive, then it will do that. We can fight it all we like, but it recolonizes quite quickly when it's allowed to do it. So I think being a wildlife one, I think this is what Chris Bain's main message is, is he, he makes allowances for it. He doesn't he likes to garden, but he won't he'll have areas where he'll let have a, a, a habitat pile or bits of his garden where he allows it ponds and, and what bog gardens you've got a pond are incredible areas for wildlife. So you're inviting it in to your garden you're inviting it in and it takes advantage of that it comes pretty quickly my allotment neighbour Peter Iris Peter who's, who, who's next to me on the allotments he just put a pond in had tadpoles in it within a week the good thing about that is as well is tadpoles will eat keel slugs so I'm all up for this sort of stuff, you know. So. Well, well, not not when they're still tadpoles, I assume. No, no, I don't think it'd be have to be a mighty muscly tadpole. Yeah, <laughs> the frogs will, I hopefully. Yeah, the frogs will. But isn't it amazing? The pond's only been there a week, and, and they appear. These tadpoles appear. If by magic, almost we build it, they will come. Scenario in many ways. So if you're planting plants for pollinators and butterflies and bees, they will come. So if you're doing it, if you're doing your gardening to allow nature to be involved. It will be involved, and that means at the same time, your pests, your unwanted wildlife, will probably be balanced off and checked off as a result. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, we moved, as you know, from a tiny little pond at the top of the garden, which we took out, created a big park pond down the bottom of the garden, a, a fair 
fair distance if 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 you're a newt, but um, <laughs> yeah. it didn't it didn't uh, seem to deter them. Actually, I'd be interested to know. Did did Chris talk a lot about water? I mean, what was the key thing that that he said? You want to encourage biodiversity? Was it water? Very much put an emphasis on ponds. I think that they will talk about as well is any kind of bits, don't anything that's decaying. So you might get a hole in the side of a branch or anything like that, or you know, little bits of rock crevices. He talks about a lot. Little areas that wildlife can get into and be secure. But he tells one nice bit also about coming out, you know, at night and putting his torch into the pond and how it's all alive. So you kind of making those little habitats, those areas for nature to thrive, is really comes across strong when he's chatting away. Crevices and water and planting uh, rich pollen rich uh, plants that haven't been overbred and, and bloused out pollen's been bloused out of them there's something very interesting about dead wood isn't there i'm told that the right thing to do if you've got a shrub a woody shrub um or maybe a small tree or something that has died don't yeah, rush to take it, it out mm. Well, now you see, it's interesting you're saying about how we used to garden, how we garden now. They'll leave a standing dead tree in a park because they're absolutely wonderful for nature. From from small, in, invisible almost nature, all the way up to bats and birds, they, they really are. Uh, rot holes is another really big one. So if you've got a branch that's died and you get these rotten bits where it's where it's died away, you get these rot holes when it breaks eventually. Well, they're little universes for wildlife. They really are. Gosh, it's actually really inspiring, isn't it? And it's making me rethink, actually, how can I make sure my garden does everything it can. I mean, I'm, I think I've got a bit of an ambition, actually. I need to see a slow worm in my garden. I found one. I found <laughs> one on there because I get them on the lot. I find them in the compost bin. I find them there and they're just amazing creatures. They're just like the bat. They're kind of a, they're a, not a bonus creature, aren't they? There's something a bit special about them because you just don't see them that commonly, you know. So, yeah, definitely. A compost bin, anywhere that's dark and dank is what they like. I think if you create that sort of sort of environment, they will come. Oh, it's inspiring, though, isn't it? As always, you know, you stop and think about these things, making me feel encouraged to go and have another go. Uh, yeah, don't be downhearted. Don't be downhearted, Fiona. Have, give it another go. It's, it's, that's, I think to go again is a good expression for a gardener. We, we crack on, you know, and, uh, and you're right, it is uplifting, this, particularly this time of year, because everything's just so beautiful and so fresh, and uh, it's hard not to walk around without a big smile on your face, I think. Now, a few weeks back, Chris Collins chatted to broadcaster and author Chris Baines ahead of the release of the new edition of his classic book, How to Make a Wildlife Garden, originally published in 1985. Chris has been a long-time supporter of Garden Organic and today remains one of our key advisors. The two Chrises settled into a great discussion on the place for activism in gardening, as well as offering the very best tips and advice on how to welcome wildlife into your garden. Welcome to the Garden Organic Podcast and thanks for joining us. I've got a treat today. I'm with Chris Baines, who used to be part of Garden Organic, played a big role in fact. How are you doing, Chris? Um, really good, really well. Um, just enjoying seeing the spring emerging. Got a, a fantastic uh, Magnolia stellata is in full flower outside my my window and uh, my mum gave me that about 30 years ago so she'd be chuffed to bits to see it oh brilliant so not only beautiful but also very personal isn't it we 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 make these we form these connections with plants don't we through our lives as gardeners and it's quite a special part of it yeah yeah and i mean the reason i've had a, a career like i've had really is down to my mum and dad my my dad was a teacher i always say he was a, a kind of nature table kind of teacher you know taught in junior schools and uh was passionate about 
wildlife and nature. And my mum was just a fantastic gardener who could, you know, strike roots on a chair leg kind of thing. She was just a brilliant propagator. So the combination of those two is who I am, really. So it's in your blood then, really, if your parents are big gardeners, you've kind of grown up with it. Yeah. And also, I mean, I've always been a campaigner as well. And I think that's in my blood. Growing up in Sheffield, that's where the mass trespass opened up the Peak District, you know, back in the 1930s. And my dad's dad was very much involved with the whole rambling world of, of Sheffield. So that combination of garden nature and revolution is, is really who I am. <laughs> yeah, that's a good combination. I, I can uh, I can buy into that, definitely. It's interesting, isn't it? Nowadays, in a little way, gardeners, we are activists to a certain degree, aren't we? Because there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, environmentally that we need to be concerned with. Yeah, and I, I've been doing things, kicking at things, I suppose, for 50 years now, really. I mean, the wildlife gardening thing started, really, I suppose, as a reaction against the, the horticulture that I studied. I went to university uh, to study horticulture at Y College, thinking I was going to learn about nature and wildlife and, you know, all of that. And instead, I spent three years being taught how to kill everything, really. I mean, it was all about, it was in the 1960s, it was... You know, wildlife in the garden was either a weed or a pest or a disease. There was no idea that it would be a good thing to encourage. For me, started, I managed to, uh, I used to present a, a wildlife strand on a TV, daily TV program called Pebble Mill at One, which a few people might vaguely remember. The gardening presenter was Peter Seabrook. And he was very orthodox. He'd taken over from Percy Thrower on Gardener's World. And, you know, he in those days, Gardener's World, he would appear in his, in his collar and tie. And I managed to get on to Gardener's World in 1979. We did a, a couple of garden makeovers. This is long, long before um, Alan Titchmarsh and, you know, and Charlie Dimmock and all of that. One garden on a housing estate in uh, in Peterborough which I called a rich habitat garden. And uh, I remember Peter saying, well, what's the idea here? And I, he was there in his shirt and tie. I had long hair and a beard and was clearly from the other universe. Um, and I said to Peter, well, I, you know, I, I want it to be a garden that really attracts wildlife. And he just said, and you really think Britain's gardeners are going to be interested in that? <laughs> So that was 79. And then uh, in 1985, I made uh, the very first wildlife garden at Chelsea Flower Show. And that was a similar kind of reaction, really. You know, I, I got in kind of under false pretenses because I designed a bonsai display at Chelsea about 10 years earlier, which meant I was on an approved list. And they didn't kind of read the small print, I don't think, of what I was going to do. And um, I remember the very first day at Chelsea, going around the other garden designers and digging up daisies from their lawns to plant in my lawn. And the idea that anybody at Chelsea in 1985 would want daisies in their lawn. Um, and the RHS um, was so so completely wrong-footed by the idea that on my Chelsea medal, it says to, to J.C. Baines for his wildfire garden. They just could not get their heads around the idea that you could have the word wildlife and the word garden in the same sentence. So we've come a very, very long way since then. Yeah, you would have, would have shot them. <laughs> no, I mean, every garden at Chelsea is full of cowslips and primroses and foxgloves. We have. It's incredible because now they can't, can't get enough of it, can they, really? It's all wildlife. And I know it when I apprenticed, I remembered it. Everything had to be edged. Everything had to be weeded. Everything, you know, in a rose garden, there was only a roses allowed in it. And we've become much more freer with our garden, haven't we? Much more almost liberated, I feel. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, and and I, I mean, I'm really proud to have been a part of that. Really, um, I made a, I made a, a TV program uh, in '85 called Blue Tits and Bumblebees, uh, which was about the making of a wildlife garden in my own garden. You know, starting with a patch of of lawn, boring lawn, and finishing up with a pond and a meadow full of cowslips and uh, flower borders full of nectar plants and things. Right, so in a way, you you, you trailblazed this then to a certain degree because obviously, I mean, you mentioned Peter Seabrook. I, I've had a few heated discussions with him about the use of peat and stuff over the years. Yeah, and uh, so I know, and I know that you do get that clashing of ideologies, and uh, and it's quite interesting. But you pioneered it. You must be quite proud now when you see the fact that you know we that really the the trade has embraced it. Certainly, the up and coming people in the trade seem to be embracing it. Yeah, it's it's been it has been a revolution really, and it's made a difference actually. I mean, there are certainly species that um, of birds in particular that I remember were virtually unseen. Uh, goldfinches, for instance, real rarities back in '85. Now people are constantly telling me they get thirty or forty goldfinches on their bird feeders. So gardens have made a big positive difference. Once people started to see them as a place where they could enjoy and encourage wildlife rather than a place that they needed to kind of keep the wildlife out. And and it has got easier and easier, I think, because commerce has provided the resources, you know, bird feeders and all the rest of it. Uh, and I think if it wasn't for garden ponds, dragonflies and, and damselflies and newts and frogs would really be having an even tougher time because in the wider countryside, they really have struggled. Um, but Anne reckoned that there were 10,000 garden ponds in Sheffield alone. I was going to say, originally, that you had a lot of uh, water in, in, in farmland, didn't you? Because they used to use it to, to so that the animals could drink. But all of those water sources have kind of gone. And do you think the urban garden's taken over from? Yeah, I mean, I think it just got easier and easier to wipe out the wet bits, really, as the machines got bigger and, you know, land drains got easier to install um, and it was all mechanised. Uh, all of those rough bits of the countryside, you know, the wet field corners, the boggy bits, just have largely disappeared. And the hedgerows, as we all know, disappeared in the 90s. Um, and if you then compare that kind of degraded, wider farming landscape with a mature residential housing area. I live in in pretty close to the centre of Wolverhampton. It's a 10-minute walk to Marks and Spencer, so I'm right in the middle of the town. But I'm surrounded by an urban forest, really, of street trees. There's a park around the back. All of my neighbours have different kinds of gardens. So I my front garden is, is I suppose, 40% pond, uh, and the rest of it is flower borders and, and um, woodland wildflowers. But, and so I don't have a lawn. But my next door neighbour has a lawn. And so, you know, the song thrush is gathering mud at the edge of my pond and then it's nipping over the hedge and gathering worms from his lawn. And if you think about the the kind of complexity of that mosaic of different spaces and habitats, all in that urban forest setting, and compare that with the average stretch of improved agricultural farmland, there's no comparison. The bird song here is fantastic in the morning. It really is, because they're woodland birds, really. Well, I'm up on the top floor of a block in, in North London, and I have a balcony. And it's funny you mentioned goldfinch, because there was about – I'm in a tree line, just off – there's a tree line off just the balcony. There was 30 goldfinches 
there this morning. <laughs> so I've got long tail tits. I've got great. And so it is really from in a little way, I suppose, where we, I know you can look at the world and think we're all in trouble because of the environment, but gardeners can contribute this in these, well, these little spaces really do add up to something, don't they? They add up to a great deal. And, and we're a very urban nation, you know, of all the people on the earth today, it's something like one in a hundred live in the British Isles. So we're a pretty crowded bit of the globe. Uh, but we're also a great gardening nation. And so in most urban areas, gardens make up a very substantial proportion of the of the land surface. I, I always think of my garden as a kind of glade in the urban forest that's better than the average glade in the average forest because a big mammal wanders out in the morning and hangs food up for you. I mean, how how good can it be if you're a blue tit or a great tit? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I they eat better than me, my birds. <laughs> <laughs> So it's uh, yeah, it's 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 more than just a kind of nice to have, really. It's made a big difference. And goldfinches are a very positive story, but actually, it's not all good news. I, I remember again when I was those very early gardens, I would always have um, spotted flycatcher. There's a beautiful bird that migrates from Africa, and I, I in the in the first edition of the book, I, I wrote something to the effect that if you put up a, a small shelf in a climber on the on the fence or the wall um, and you leave it quite late because spotted flycatchers migrate and arrive quite late, you'll be very unlucky not to get a spotted flycatcher. That's 40 years ago. I haven't seen one for 10 years. Disappeared. Yeah. So, so it's not – and it's essentially because we've seen a spectacular decline in the number of insects. I remember as a kid, uh, one of my jobs, if we ever had, were treated to a drive in my granddad's car, my job was to keep getting out and scraping the insects off the, off the headlamp. When did you last have to do that? I mean, and so if you lose the insects, well, you lose pretty well everything in the end because even the seed-eating birds have to have invertebrates, have to have – animal food to feed their young when they first hatch. So breeding success has declined. And that's uh, it's very difficult to know whether there's one major thing that's made the difference. Yeah, it could be a possibility a, com a combination of things, couldn't it, I suppose. that's that's uh, And also some creatures like the great tick you mentioned are incredibly adaptable to urban life, haven't they? They take to it much easier. I'm interested, you know, obviously you've got this book, How to Make a Wildlife Garden, is being re-released, updated and re-released. Brilliant news and a brilliant book. So can you give me some tips on how people can welcome wildlife into their gardens? I think the the main thing I would say is look at your whole neighborhood and see how your garden fits in. Just that's that's the best way to kind of understand what you're trying to do. And what you're trying to do is to create a kind of service station in that network. That's why ponds and water are so important because if there are any hedgehogs in your neighborhood, if there are any foxes in your neighborhood, they will come to your garden if you've got water. So even a small, even a puddle in the in a hot, dry summer will make a difference to survival. So I think water would be the plants that you choose. Um, it's not rocket science, really. If you if you visit other gardens or you visit garden centres and look at what the bees and the butterflies are actually on, then those are the plants that they're choosing, and you need to choose the same ones. And it's essentially it's plants that are single, so they're rather than double flowers. So they're producing lots of pollen and nectar um, and to try and get as long a flowering season as possible. So uh, the grape hyacinths are just coming out in the garden now, the wallflowers, 
but I've already had a fantastic display uh, outside the front door of a, of a winter honeysuckle, um, Lanissa fragrantissima, which fills the garden with perfume, but also is buzzing with bees whenever there was a warm, sunny day in January. And then running right the way through to the autumn and Michaelmas daisies right through to October, November. Uh, and then, you know, the, the honeysuckle comes in again. So trying to get a year round supply of food and not just nectar and pollen, also obviously seeds and berries in the autumn make a big difference. Uh, the third thing, I think, is to 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 think about shelter. And so hedges and fences covered in climbers provide lots of cover for birds to nest in and for bats to roost in and that kind of thing. Uh, but also you can provide, uh, you can boost the, the the nesting sites for whole nesting birds, things like blue tits and, and great tits, by putting up nesting boxes. Um, so you can begin to offer what a woodland glade would have in a real wood but you can't afford to have big dead trees and dead branches in your garden, but you can actually provide the nesting size. And then I suppose finally, there's the whole business of, of bird feeding. And that's much more tricky now, I think, because... I, I, I was going to say, because um, now they say maybe should we be feeding in the in the spring and the summer when there's bountiful uh, um, food for them, or do you just feed them for the winter? I think, I think it's, I mean, my, I've always believed that actually if, if the habitat and the neighbourhood is rich enough, then for most of the year, birds are, are going to be fine. But if you want to see them, having bird feeders outside your window brings them to you. And that's part of the purpose of the exercise. But there is this whole worry now about disease and bird flu. And, uh, and also, if you keep on feeding in the same place, then rats will find the debris underneath the bird feeder. And so so I think feeding feeding you should think about as a, a way of getting the birds where you can see them. And it's particularly particularly good, I think, in the winter when naturally food natural food can be in very short supply. And the other thing that I would say to people is don't just judge your garden by daylight. Actually go out with a torch at night and you'll find that actually there's an awful lot of wildlife out there that you perhaps never noticed. That to go out there at night with a powerful torch and look down into the water, you suddenly realize there's a whole other world out there that you never normally notice. So one of the things that I think has been fantastic about the whole wildlife gardening revolution, if I can call it that, is that more and more gardeners are now beginning to use their garden as a place to really look in detail. and. There's a whole citizen science movement gathering data, gathering information. So the biggest of those things is the Big Garden Bird Watch, which takes place every year. Bee Watch, Butterfly Watch, Hog Watch, Frog Watch. And all of that is ordinary gardeners with an ordinary garden looking at it and thinking, well, actually, the information I'm absorbing could be more use if we added it to everybody else's knowledge. And so we're really learning through gardeners a great deal more about what's happening to the wildlife. And that's that's true of the kind of declining birds and the increasing birds, but it's also true of things like um, uh, the way that climate change is bringing new pests into, into the gardens. You know, it's gardeners who will be noticing the harlequin ladybirds that have been spreading from the southeast all the way up the country um and the green 
parakeets that everybody's familiar with in in south of England are now well as far as Scotland. I mean that's taken them. 20 years, I guess. There's plenty of them here in London. This thing, yeah, yeah. It came through, oh, they arrived in Wolverhampton about five years ago, I remember. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's the sa- It's now the soundtrack, isn't it? Of, of Chelsea, I always think when I go to Chelsea in the spring, it's the soundtrack of Chelsea now. It's, it's Green Parakeets, yeah. <laughs> yes, it is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my local park, you just get big flocks of them. And, uh, yeah, that's they're a, they're a sign of, well, they're a sign of probably climate, but also just globalisation, isn't it? The fact we move around the planet so much now. And 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 the bird feeding. I mean, I think bird feeding has made made a significant difference to their success too. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's just interesting. It's just interesting to have all of that to think about on your doorstep. And then so the fact that also gardeners are front line, aren't we? We're there. We are. We're custodians in many ways. And so we're, I always feel we're very underrated, und- undervalued <laughs> set of people. Uh, you know, and horticulture generally. So it's nice to know that we we do play an important role. So, so tell me about your relationship with Garden Organic because you were quite involved heavily, weren't you, uh, before? Yeah. Well, when they moved to rugby um, and uh, and set up Wright and Gardens, that's an hour from where I live. Um, and I I got to know them quite well. Um, and uh, one of the things that I did was to create a, a wildlife garden at Wrighton, uh, right in the first year, and then worked with them on uh, on a wildflower meadow there. Uh, so, you know, right from the very beginning of their arrival in Wrighton, I, I was involved. I was also really interested in the kind of research side of what they were doing. You know, this is the first time that gardeners had got involved en masse with things like composting uh, experiments and, and uh, demonstrations. So the early days of Wrighton were really revolutionary in that they were absolutely about education. They were all about demonstrating. And I just remember being blown away by the by the quality of what they were demonstrating that you could grow entirely organically at a time when essentially, you know, every gardener assumed that you had to spray everything, um, that you had to use artificial fertilizers. Wrighton was the place that was was, you know, proving that not to be the case. In a way, it's pioneering because at the time you would have been sort of organic gardening, wildlife gardening would have been written off as a sort of hippie thing, you know, or sort of like a, a, an outsider sort of thing. So really, garden organic in yourself and Lawrence, etc. You kind of made it into a science, didn't you? You made organic gardening, wildlife gardening into something that was real and 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 you couldn't, you know, that, that was knowledgeable basically. Yeah, and and also, you know, we were publicists, I suppose. So the Muck and Magic series on TV. Was going at the same time as I was. I was doing lots. I did lots of television in the eighties, particularly lots of children's television. I had a, a series called The Wild Side of Town, which was showing people just how much wildlife there was living in the towns and cities. And and even now, you know, it's 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 a bit of a revelation. You had to be pretty determined in those days to actually be heard, really. And Garden Organic or, or Henry Doubleday uh, Research Association and I were absolutely kind of arguing the case that there was a different and better way of doing things. And um, and now, you know, they're both absolutely mainstream. 
Well, it's just what I'm saying. You were visionaries, weren't you? Because now it's everywhere. Almost in a way, what Lawrence was saying, what you yourself were saying, Henry Double, that was important, wasn't it, almost, for the future? Because everybody now, all the big guns, the RHS, the, you know, the, the English Heritage, uh, the, um, in, the um, National Trust, are all now taking these ideas on, aren't they? So The reason that I, I um, wanted to do a new and expanded edition of the book, which you know, first came out nearly 40 years ago, was because my work's changed. I'm now really involved on a much wider landscape, but it's still basically about habitat creation feed. So there's a there's a real kind of growing up, if you like, of the idea that we can't just stand back and watch everything disappear. We have to intervene. And the 40 years of garden of gardening in that kind of way as I think given people the confidence to say, well, yeah, you know, we could begin to bring back the woodlands and bring back the, the the salt marsh. As a part of this need to shift our thinking, nature is beginning to be seen as a tool that we can use to reverse climate change and to actually bring back the wildlife while we're actually beginning to reduce the, the impact of climate change and, and global warming. So it's a very, very exciting time, really. I was just saying, it's absolutely fascinating. It really is. And that, just that understanding that you have about how everything weaves together, you know, it's nothing independent, is it? It all kind of connects. It's all a web, if you like. As a horticulturalist, I think one of the great lessons I learned as a student was, was really to understand about hybrid vigour um, and that if you bring two organisms together and combine them, then the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. And that's very much what I, my work really is bringing all these, I always say I'm I'm somebody who, who creates partnerships between strange bedfellows, you know, so unholy alliances, really. I love nothing better than, than getting the nature conservation people and the water industry and the energy industry working together because when they all kind of leave their baggage at the door and start to play to their strengths, you can begin to see how you can join it all together and, and begin to recover. You know, I mean, my lifetime has been a lifetime spent watching things disappear. Um, so you sound quite optimistic about it, Chris. I love that personally. You sound quite upbeat about it. Is that important, do you think? I, I'm, I'm an, I am an optimist. I'm an enthusiast and an optimist. I'm also a realist. I mean, I've, I've watched so much stuff disappear. I mean, I, I was talking to a friend yesterday and we were both saying that when when we were growing up, um, if I walked out of the edge of Sheffield into the fields, 30 or 40 lapwings would fly up. Now, if I see a lapwing, I screech to a halt and get out and try and photograph it, you know? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, been a, it's been a disaster, really, the last 60 or 70 years in terms of, of wildlife. really has the one saving grace, I think, in the UK has been gardens. Gardens have actually got better, and urban areas, ironically, have got better for wildlife whilst the wider countryside has got worse and worse and worse. But this is the moment to change that. Yes, it's right. So it's it's recoverable is what you're saying. If we do the right things, we can we can pull this back. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there are there are some exciting examples. I mean we now have otters, for instance, in every county. Um, 30 years ago, they were pretty well extinct, apart from West Wales and the north of Scotland. But because we've, ironically, everybody's talking about the pollution in rivers, but the rivers are so much cleaner and healthier than they were 30 or 40 years ago. 
and I've been I, I'm a I'm president of something called the Thames Estuary Partnership. And the story of the Thames Estuary is fantastic, really. 70 years ago, it was dead, biologically dead. There are now something like 140 different species of fish in there. There are even There's even a, a, a large population of harbour porpoises that lives in the Thames beside the House of Commons. Now, who knew, you know? So there is a fantastically positive strand here. It's just that we need to do very, very much more, and we need to do it with a bit more urgency, and we need to join up all the resources we can muster uh, to actually make it happen. Well, you know, it would be nice if it started to happen in my lifetime, but certainly the next 70 years ought to be the 70 years of, of reversal and recovery, really. Yeah, well, I'm sure, you know, I, I, it's great that you're doing all this stuff. I find it personally very inspirational, and I hope other people do. I hope they get the book, because obviously all these ideas are in there. If I was, if everyone, someone wanted to come and chat to you more, are you out and about? If you wanted to come and, you know, get a copy of your book, get you to sign it, where are you going to be? I mean, but I'm, I'm actually going to the Spring Show uh, in Malvern, the RHS Spring Show in Malvern. On the Saturday, I'm going to be giving a, a talk in Malvern on the, on the Saturday. So hopefully... I shall see a few people there. I will be at Malvern that day. I'm doing stuff with the kids' gardeners, so the gardening. So I'll I'll certainly come along and uh, get you to sign a copy of a book from me. Um, it's been wonderful to talk to you, Chris. I've really enjoyed. I actually could have spoken to you all night. To be fair, um, maybe we'll get. Uh, I'd like to be. You know, I look forward to chatting again with you. That's for sure. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. That's great. It's a it's a pleasure, and uh, and it's so nice to be doing something with Garden Organic. Yeah, thanks very much. Brilliant. So we've opened up the post bag once again. Uh, some great questions this month, um, as ever. Um, I'm here with Anton and Chris. Hi, Anton. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Chris. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Anton. Right, we're going straight in with perennial veg to start with. So, dear Garden Organic, in your latest members magazine, you ran an article suggesting we grow more perennial vegetables. However, I was wondering then how that fits with the four-year rotation of different types of veg that we do to reduce pest buildup. How does this work if the same veg are in the same bed perennially? I have four veg beds to grow in and I haven't got room for permanent crops as well. So that's Heather asking that question. There's a lot of reasons why you'd want to grow perennial veg and they have become more popular recently. One reason is time saving because you're only having to plant them out once and then they're producing for a number of years. And also because they use quite a lot less resources. They've got a good root system down there, um, so you're not having to water them so much. So that's really important. And also all the sort of resources associated with raising plants as well. You're not having to use sort of seed trays and um, seed compost every year. So from a resource point of view, they really make a lot of sense. They also, a lot of them are available during the hungry gap as well. So they help to sort of fill in that gap. So they've, they've got a good role. Okay, so Heather asked um, about rotation specifically. So with rotations, obviously perennial veg are going to stay in a lot longer. So they don't really fit into a normal four-year rotation. My experience with perennial veg is that they tend to stay in the ground for about sort of three or four years. And then the quality tends to decrease, particularly with something like um, perennial kale. You end up with a, a lot of sort of branch woody stems. And so at that stage, you probably want to take cuttings, divide them, and then move them on. So in effect, you 
do end up rotating them, but in very slow motion. It's a ro- you basically end up moving them every sort of four years. I like to call it a zombie rotation, but <laughs> generally you're you, you need to keep them in a separate area because otherwise it ends up getting quite sort of muddled up with all the rest of your other crops. Okay, so Chris, let's um dive in a bit more here. Um perennial veg, it's sort of a bit of a term that has come along but actually there's perennial crops in most kitchen gardens uh, uh do you want to demystify that a little bit more for us yeah of course i mean if you've already got probably already got perennial um, veg on your site anyway i mean think of rhubarb i had a, a delicious rhubarb crumble on sunday by the way from my from my allotment so they're definitely worth it but i so you know quite a lot of kale, like you mentioned kale perpetual spinach um, sorrel, horseradish, there's quite a lot of crops we grow you can put on the allotment. Um, when, so I do, so I have one bed put aside for that. I think my tip would be really um, is to make sure you just prepare the area well. My allotment can be very weedy because it wasn't, as you well know, it wasn't uh, looked after for so long. So my dilemma would be if I put in perennial veg, because they're static for at least three or four years, all that weed's going to come through and cause me problems. So I think the old, uh, the good organic trick of making sure you leave it a season, put down a cover, some cardboard, some compost over the top, just let it sit to shade out all the perennial weeds before you plant your your perennial veg bed in there, I think. So a little bit of preparation, or you can put them in a raised bed and get round it that way as well. So that's what I did. I do crop them quite regularly. I, I totally agree with um, Anton about how it's slow motion uh, movement because I would treat them like I treat herbaceous perennials basically like in a herbaceous border I will lift them every three and four years I'll divide them and I'll put them back again and that what means it just maintains plant vigour they get a bit old and woody and they tend to hollow out in the centre if you don't do that so if you lift and divide put them back you'll get young vigorous growth again and that will be straight into the kitchen so yes rotation in slow motion I love it I love it zombie <laughs> rotation as that's brilliant it's a brilliant expression I'm going to remember that <laughs> Okay, fantastic. Right. Um, Moving on to scarred fly. I have little black scarred flies on my compost, which I used to ignore. But then a couple of years ago, I had a problem with wilting aubergines in my greenhouse. So I've been trying to control them. I find they're in the compost side by when I get home. How can I keep them under control? And that's from Bill. Gosh, yes. Well, Anton, first of all, what is scarred fly? So scarab flies are tiny little black flies. Um, you distinguish them from fruit flies because scarab flies tend to jerk around and dance on the top of your compost, whereas fruit flies tend to drift around. So a scarab fly tends to have a much more sort of jerky motion. And the flies themselves aren't a problem, but it's actually their grubs which are a real problem because they lay their eggs into the compost. And then you'll see that there are tiny little maggots, um, only a sort of a couple of millimetres long, but they eat the roots of your plants. Mm. And generally, that's not such a problem with larger plants, but with seedlings, that can really cause a problem. It can even kill off the seedlings. So um, I particularly find it's a problem in things like um, with a large fleshy seed. They seem to really go for that. So things um, particularly like, um, well, Actually, pumpkin seeds can be quite bad because they can even eat at the um, shoot before it comes out. So sometimes you find that when something hasn't germinated, 
you take out the seed and you find a mass of little maggots in there. And that's the reason it hasn't germinated. Um, also, things like French beans as well can be a problem. And for some reason, they really make a beeline for coriander as well. They they <laughs> seem to love the smell of it, unlike a lot of people. Yeah, you just have to watch those sort of plants. So it's mainly a problem in seedlings. And what you'll notice is that the seedlings start to wilt even when you're watering them well. Um, and because the scarab fly likes damp conditions, your your instinct when you see something wilting is to water it. Um, but actually, you're making the problem worse there. So it, it's a tricky one in, if you get it in your seedlings. Gosh, it's quite a complex pest, this one, isn't it? Um, how would you deal with it, Anton, organically? So there are a number of ways you can deal with them. There's, yeah, prevention is one of the best ways. And as they often fly into your compost and lay the eggs into the compost, um, just be be really vigilant with your bags of compost. Make sure that you fold the tops down if you've got an open bag of compost. So that's quite important. Um, secondly, try and avoid overwatering. Um, I find they're really an inside pest problem. They're not a problem outside. So I've actually found if you can put the seed trays outside during the day, then that really does decrease the problem massively. Um, if it's still a problem, then there are some biological treatments as well. Um, there's either a nematode that you can water, water in and water your seed trays with. Um, but I've found that there is a mite, which I personally, I found that more effective and you get it in a, like a little sort of pepper shaker and you shake it onto <laughs> your compost and you can actually see the little mites crawling out a little army of of, of mites that are going to go and attack those scarred fly larvae so um yeah th those are sort of possibilities you can use they tend to be on the pricey side so you'd probably use them if if you've got a sort of larger area to treat Okay, well, you've described them really well. I now know exactly what you're talking about because of that jerky flight motion that they do. Um, Chris, you must have some of these in the house plants. <laughs> yeah, I certainly do. I saw one a little while ago, actually. I mean, I've got over a good over 100 house plants in the in the flat. So um, I've just learned to live with them, really, to be honest with you. I mean, they're around. I think the point Anton makes is quite important. I think they are related to how damp and wet the compost is. So a good free-draining, decent compost is quite important. I tend to also, in my houseplants, mix the compost with some broken uh, some bark or some, some good roughage, and that helps it drain quicker. I also tend to keep my houseplants fairly dry. I don't overwater them. My big concern is obviously they might get into all the seedlings I have the house as well this time of year. Um, putting them outside, I think I'm hardening off my seedlings at the moment, so they're going out into the air, then they're coming back in in the evening. I'm sure that is one of the reasons why I don't see any scarab fly damage on them, but it's all a case of observation, making sure I look at those seedlings, make sure that the, the scarab I've got on the houseplants don't transfer to the seedlings. That's that's the main thing. I love the idea of a pepper shaker full of mites. If I spot any, then I'll still be on that straight away. <laughs> Absolutely, yes, that's great. I love the pepper shaker as well. Fantastic. Okay, so final question from Sue. I've been trying to buy organic topsoil free of pesticides. Garden centres look at me like I'm crazy for wanting such a thing. Does it exist? Anton? So in short answer, no, there isn't actually an organic standard for topsoil. And this might sound a bit counterintuitive at first. But actually, it's a technical reason. Organic standards relate to things which are grown directly in the soil. Um, so there's no accounting for moving soil around. So that's the reason why we don't have an organic standard for 
topsoil. However, there is actually a quality assurance standard. Um, it's got the rather charming name of BS3882. So you want to <laughs> look out for that um, when you are buying topsoil. Um, you probably will find it on um, most reputable suppliers. Um, we tend to get most of our sort of topsoils and compost from Melcourt. Um, they specify that they are pesticide free. So perhaps look at the small print as well when you are buying topsoil, because I think some suppliers have gone in for a little bit more sort of rigorous testing. So just have a little look around and shop around. Some topsoil will say that it also has added compost. And this is particularly the ones which say, say topsoil for veg growing. And that compost also has a quality assurance standard called PASS 100. So you want to look out for that. It's another sort of standard to say that it reaches, reaches certain sort of quality levels of the compost. So just have a look out for that as well when you're buying topsoil. Thanks, Anton. A great comprehensive answer. And in fact, a great discussion. Well, that's it for the post bag. Uh, lots of good questions this time. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Cheers, Fiona. Cheers, Anton. See you all next time. Well, that's it for the Organic Gardening Podcast this month. But if you've any questions for us, do drop us a line at advice at gardenorganic.org.uk. A special thank you to Chris Baines for sharing his wisdom and experience with us. His book has been republished as the RHS Companion to Wildlife Gardening. Before we go, there's just enough time for me to tell you about a few things we've got coming up. Now the gardening season is in full swing. I'm delighted to say we'll have a stand at the Schoon Palace Garden Fair just north of Perth on the 2nd and 3rd of June. And we're doing a full show garden at Gardeners World Live at the NEC in Birmingham on the 15th to the 18th of June. The theme is Biodiversity in Your Backyard. You can book our courses and events via our website gardenorganic.org.uk. There's loads going on, including our AGM on the 18th of May if you're a member of Garden Organic. And don't forget to have a look at our inspirational social media channels. We're at Garden Organic on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We want to do all we can to help you grow the organic way. Our thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music. That's it. Until next time. <laughs>